Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today we are concluding our little three-part series on the Enoch Factor with James Jordan. Do remember to check out those links in the show notes if you are not already subscribed to our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. There's a link down there for you to do so. Every week we send out a meditation from Peter Lightheart, as well as updates on our work, both in articles and media, and share upcoming events and give away free resources as well. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan concluding this series on the Enoch Factor. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the modern secular worldview and its deficiencies. Before we do that... I feel constrained to make a further comment on something I said last week. I'm always interested in feedback I get. And apparently last week in here I said that all the men in the church should subscribe to Playboy magazine and look at the pictures every month in order to increase their willpower. I don't remember saying that, but I almost get the impression that that's what I said. I didn't say that. All I said was, I asked the question, is it morally possible for a man's eye to fall upon one of these pictures, a girly picture, without sin? And he answered, yes. And I think that uh, the Bible supports me in that, as well as common sense and experience. You're dropping your car off at a garage, obviously not Robert's Car Care Center, but some garage somewhere, and you're talking to the man, and there's one of these pictures on the wall. Well, if that falls across your eye... You know, is it possible to look at that, I mean, for it to come across your eye without you falling into sin? Well, I think so. If you have some big problem in this area, then obviously you should make every attempt not to even see these things. It's also true, I think, that uh, teenage boys at one time or another, out of sheer curiosity, are going to look at one or two of these pictures, and curiosity is not the same thing as lust. It can lead to it, but curiosity and lust are not the same thing, and so... It's not always the case that just because somebody has seen something like that, that they're inevitably on the road to adultery. And I said last time, and we need at some point in the course, though not today, to discuss this in more detail, and we will get to it, people vary in their response to these kinds of things, and they vary a great deal. They vary according to whether the eye gate is powerful for them or not. My wife and I sometimes go to art museums, and I kind of walk through the room, and she stops and looks at all the pictures. Uh, To her, what she sees with her eye is much more powerful than what I see with my eye. Uh, I think that I respond to music more than she does. People vary in their constitution. They vary in age. They vary in marital status. They vary in background. They vary in all kinds of things, which have a lot to do with how well you can filter the garbage that the world is throwing at us. My point last week was simply that we don't need to be utterly terrified of the garbage that the world throws at us. We can accommodate it and move on. I've had people tell me that uh, they couldn't just go to the beach. You know, let's go to the beach. Oh, you don't want to go to the beach. All those girls out there in bikinis. I say, well, man, I don't look at those girls. I just go play in the water, play with my wife and kids. Oh, but you know, well... You know, either you go to the beach to play or you go to look at the girls in bikinis, but you don't have to look at the girls in the bikinis, you see. You just don't have to. It's not that big a problem. I would like uh, simply to read some Bible passages which have to do with this, and then we want to move on. But if you'd like to turn to Mark chapter 7, 
Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. Mark 7, starting in verse 18. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, Are you too so uncomprehending? Do you not see that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man. There's an analogy here between the food you eat and the other information that you take in. And Jesus says, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. Notice how sexual sins are put up first here. Deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. In other words, the mere contact with external stimuli is not what causes sin. It's what comes out of the heart. Now, everybody has to know his own heart to some extent, and the heart is deceitful. At any rate, we're simply establishing a principle here. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Certainly not. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now that's the important principle here. What necessarily is lawful certainly isn't necessarily profitable. And Paul says the same thing in verse 23 of chapter 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Now, this establishes a principle that I think is important. Um, and it's the difference between what I think is a stronger brother position and a weaker brother position. And the church position is a stronger brother position. I mean, the church position as the Bible sets it out. The position the church is officially to maintain. The weaker brother position in any given moral question that's of interest to him is, why would you ever want to do such a thing? Why would you ever want to put salt on your food? We know that salt has bad effects on the body. So why would you ever want to put salt on your food? So you have to somehow or other justify the use of salt. Well, you can say Jesus said salt is good, so that slaps down that latest superstition that floats around Christendom. But whatever, the, uh, that is the, sort of the attitude of the weaker brother. Why would you ever take a drink of wine? I mean, why not just do without it? Why would you ever eat meat when you can do just as well on beans? Why would, you know, that is what I call a weaker brother position. You always have to justify why you're doing something. That's not the way the Bible is written. The Bible is written as a series of thou shalt not. It's what we call negative law. And so the, the, the question that the stronger brother has to ask is why not? And if God says not, that's why not. Why not commit adultery? Because God says not. Why not use salt? Well, why not? Use too much? medical doctor may say you're going to get a heart attack. All right, fine, take that into consideration. But basically the question is why not? Okay. Now, there are reasons why not, because not all things are profitable. Not all things are edifying. Not all things are good. Not all people should expose themselves to X, Y, or Z. There are people who should never read philosophy. There are people who should never read fictional literature of any sort because of the way they tend to move into a fictional world and become frustrated with the real world, and they become nasty and mean around their families. There are people who should never watch any TV. People vary. People who should never drink except in communion and then just a touch. 
because of the way their body is constituted and the kind of instant response they would have to more than a sip of alcohol. People vary. That's why the Bible doesn't legislate on some of these things, and I am certainly not trying to open up uh, the floodgates to lascivious behavior or anything of the sort. I'm simply trying to stick with what the Bible says. Let's look at a couple of other verses that pertain to this. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Here again, the problem is with the heart, not with the external thing. That's why as Christians we don't need to flee the things of the world, refuse to drive down the interstate because there's a Smirnoff vodka sign up there with a half-dressed girl telling you to buy Smirnoff vodka or anything else. Finally, and I think that this always needs to be kept in mind in discussions like this, Revelation 22, <clears throat> verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Christians are always adding to the law of God. They're like the Pharisees in that respect. The Pharisees were not content with the things that God has said don't do. They wanted to hedge them around with all kinds of other don't do's. And generally what this means is if I can't do something, then nobody can if I have a problem with rock and roll music, then I make up a rule that says nobody can listen to rock and roll music because I have a problem with it. If I have a problem with salt, I make up a rule, and I know a man just like this. In fact, he's a clergyman. His doctor told him not to eat salt. So now nobody's supposed to eat salt. Well, no, we don't make rules out of what is good for us, see. We do take biblical views, rules. Now, just, you know... To cap this off, this whole discussion, and this is a difficult area, and I simply was illustrating last week the point that we may go into the world and deal with what's there uh, with discipline, with a disciplined mind. First of all, just to remind everybody, the heart is deceitful, and he who thinks he stands must take heed lest he fall. So uh, that is the, one of the number one warnings against exposure, simple exposure to material which is generally of a temptation character. Second of all, we have to say that God clothed Adam and Eve and exposure of nakedness and sex is shameful and wrong. Not necessarily wrong to go to the doctor. It is wrong to expose nakedness and sex. In future lessons, we hope to deal in more detail with the modern pornographic worldview because it surrounds us on all sides and we need as Christians to know how to respond to it. The only point that I have been trying to make is it is not absolutely necessary to say that just because something crosses your eye, you've been defiled. You're defiled if your heart makes a certain kind of response. If your heart makes another kind of response, you're not defiled. Because defilement comes from the heart and not from external things. That's the difference between Christianity and Manichaeanism. Now that's just by way of summary. I don't wish to get into discussion of that today because now is not the time. We will come back to some of these problems later on and and maybe we'll be able to get more into it. This morning, in order to conclude these lectures, I want to talk about the city of Enoch and the culture of Enoch. And we talked last time about occultism and fringe systems, and that fringe systems frequently tend to embody truths which are ignored by establishment systems. In any given culture or civilization, there is an establishment way of thought. The establishment way is what's taught in the public schools, it's what's taught in the universities, it's what's taught in most of the churches, uh, liberal and fundamental, 
whatever the, there's an establishment mindset which is on all sides, and that's what you pick up. Then there are fringe views, and fringe views sometimes embody things that are true, but the establishment ignores, like the Great Flood, or like naturopathic medicine, or like a number of other things. Fringe views also have all kinds of kooky, weirdo ideas in them. And so the Christian needs not to fear the fringe views just because <clears throat> some of the people on the fringe may be involved in uh, occultism, but the Christian can go in and sort out what's good and bad on the fringe just as he has to go in and sort out what's good and bad in the establishment. I think Christians tend to go with the establishment uh, more often, or else they tend to flip off and go into the fringe. Everything on the fringe is true. We know that for the past 2,000 years, the Jews have controlled the world. They have a long-standing conspiracy that goes back uh, all the way to the cross of Christ uh, in order to destroy the uh, white Anglo-Saxon race because the white Anglo-Saxon race are the true descendants of Abraham by blood, and Jews are really fakes who uh, came in, and they're not really descendants of Abraham at all. Okay? Now, that idea is extremely popular in some quarters of the United States. It's known as British Israelism. and has all kinds of fruitcake varieties float around. Mormonism is one variety of this way of thinking. But, uh, you know, you find this stuff on the fringe. And they may point out that at some key moments in history, Jews have been involved in anti-Christian activity. Well, you should expect that. You should expect Jews being smarter than most people. I mean, on average, Jewish IQ is higher. I know that sounds racialistic, but it's true. Jews being smart and Jews being motivated to hate Christianity because of Christ do tend to get involved in larger numbers in activities which conspire against Christian civilization. But that does not prove that there's an underlying Jewish conspiracy which lies behind communism and everything else. Just so it shows that Jews tend to get on the boat when something anti-Christian is being done. And that's certainly true. No question about that. See, facts don't stand by themselves. Facts always have to be interpreted by other facts and by systems. Now, the, let's talk today about, we talked about this occultism and fringe stuff last week a little bit. Let's talk about the establishment today. And the modern establishment worldview is what we call atomistic empiricism. Atomistic empiricism. What does that mean? Well, empiricism is a view of the world which says to understand truth, you get a bunch of facts. It is involved in what we call a correlative theory of truth. I mean, a correspondence theory of truth. What is true? Truth is things that correspond to facts. What's true? Well, what's true about this book is that it, it corresponds to the facts that I can drum up about this, this book. And in a larger sense, a true theory of truth is one which point by point corresponds with facts in the world. This is set off against two other theories of truth, coherence theory of truth and pragmatic theory of truth. Coherence theory of truth in philosophy and in theology says what's true is what makes sense in a system as a whole. And so the way you get at truth is you devise a big system and you see if that system fits. And if it fits, uh, and if it fits together real well, that gives you an insight into truth. And so a coherence theory of truth is generally a big philosophical type thing, and that's very common in European cultures. Finally, there's a pragmatic theory of truth. And that is, says that truth is what works. Truth is what works. Um, 
If you want to know whether something is true or not, see if it works. Now, we're using true in a big sense, you know, in the sense of truth, not in the ordinary sense of this being the case or that being the case. These are the big theories of truth. Now, empiricism is in this correspondence theory of truth. If you want to understand the world, then you go out and investigate all the facts. And you have a fact here and a fact there and 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 a fact here. I'll quit and I'll quit now. Okay. Now, all those facts mystically communicate to you the truth, which is evolution, of course. Because all the facts point to evolution, don't they? Haven't you ever heard that? All the facts point to evolution. Now, that's naive and stupid, frankly, because the facts are the facts, and what they point to involves a lot of other things that you bring into it. The facts don't point to evolution. The facts are there. If they point to evolution, it's because you want them to. If they point to creation, it's because you want them to. In fact, we know that the facts, if they point to anything, brute facts are mute facts, but God's facts point to creation. Now, that's the correspondence view of truth, and that's what we are with, and that's called empiricism. We look in and we test things out, and what tests out, and what works, and what figure, what goes well in the scientific laboratory, and what is empirically provable, that's what's true. So when you study science in high school, you don't generally get a whole lot of big theory. You do if you get into physics, modern pop physics, but you don't if you're taking chemistry. In chemistry, you learn how to do experiments, and that's how you learn, because you learn by empirical investigation. And there's nothing wrong with that. The only problem is if, that has, if that's the only thing you do, then you only got part of it. That's a modern worldview. You learn things by seeing what works and by investigating individual points. And this goes together with atomism. Atomism says that in everything that's going on in the world, the real essence of what's going on you can find if you break it all down into its teeny-weeny component parts. So the, the real truth about things is a sum of all the teeny-weeny parts. Now, I know that sounds real theoretical, and you say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, let's take about a dozen examples, and then you'll understand. Okay? Atomism tends to ignore the whole and deal only with the parts. All right? Let's take in medicine. In medicine today, the prevailing theory is the germ theory. What makes you sick? Germs. And what are germs? They're teeny-weeny little parts which come in and invade your system. All right? Their purpose? To make it their system. All right? Your doctor has seen them, and now he must convince you the nightmare has already begun. Who remembers that TV show? <laughs> All right, that's the germ theory. Now, we can set germ theory over against other views of medicine which are not so popular except on the fringe. And since we're all on the fringe in this respect, and we all read Prevention Magazine, we know that there's a holistic theory of medicine. That sure, germs are there, but the reason you get sick is because your overall system gets run down and you invite the germs to come in and cause problems. So the, the major cause for disease, according to naturopathic medicine, is what you eat and what you pass on. That's the way you keep health, okay? Now, it's not just in germ theory medicine that we find the modern atomistic worldview. You also find it in homeopathic medicine. And we have advocates of homeopathic medicine even in our own church. 
Homeopathic medicine says that the individual teeny-weeny cells of your body are what cause you to be sick or well. And the way you make them well is you eat cell salts. And you keep the right number of individual teeny-weeny cell salts in your individual teeny-weeny cells, and then you're well, see? And that's what causes health and sickness, getting teeny-weeny cell salts into your teeny-weeny cells. That's atomism. The cause of all the big things is in the teeny-weeny things. That's atomism. That's the modern worldview. It's everywhere. Homeopathic medicine despises germ theory medicine. But presuppositionally, it's the same. See? They're both atomistic. How about naturopathic medicine? Well, naturopathic medicine also tends to be atomistic because naturopathic medicine says you are what you eat. Let's eat right to keep fit and all these other things. What you take in, naturopathic medicine is concerned with food and bowel movements. What you take in and what you get rid of. That's the heart of naturopathic medicine. You can read up on it. Get yourself, go down to the health food store, and there's the homeopathic books. And there aren't any germ theory books down there, no. Uh-uh. None of that stuff. <laughs> and there's naturopathic stuff. And there's naturopathic stuff that tells you how to eat and how to fast and how to brush your body off with a brush every day because your skin is an organ of elimination. You get rid of all those dry cells, how to take enemas, and all the other things. Well... That's, I mean, you know, we all know that there's a great deal of truth to that, but even that tends to be atomistic. You are these particles of things that you take in and particles of things that you get rid of. What you cycle through is what makes you well or sick. Even that goes along with the modern worldview. What you don't hear a whole lot of, although you do hear it more and more, would be a non-atomistic view of health. That is, that people are healthy when they're happy when they're working hard and when they have something to look forward to. When people are optimistic, they're hard at work, they are challenged by something, they're going out and getting on it, they tend to be healthy and they tend not to get sick. And they can even eat junk food and not get sick. See? And they can even get exposed to germs and not get sick because they're They have a certain attitude. Now, that's a holistic view. See, that's not atomistic. That says what your whole person is thinking and doing tends to make you well or sick. And not only that, but how, what kind of good community you're in. In other words, the increase in sickness in our society is due to the fact that our whole society is more and more morally depraved. And if our whole society would quit being so selfish and self-centered and me-oriented, And if our whole society would return to Christ and obey his law and become optimistic and get to work and change the world, there would be a whole lot less disease in our society as a whole because your your health is influenced by people around you just in a mental attitude kind of way. Now, that's all very true also. All of these things are true. Each of these things is true. And there's no need to pit one against the other. I mean, I'm not going to go on record about homeopathic medicine and cell salts. It's helped me from time to time. But I think we are all aware that there are germs and that it does make a difference what you eat and it does make a difference whether you're happy and it makes a difference whether you have a positive mental attitude, PMA, and all the other things that make a difference. Now, you see, the modern views tend to ignore this. I forget who it was. There was some movie actor or important person a while back who had, and I forget the disease, Uh, This just occurs to me, but 
He had, I think he had cancer or something. He was sitting in the hospital pining away and dying. And he decided that laughter was the best medicine. He read that in Reader's Digest. And uh, so he got all the funny movies that he could and checked them out, started playing them in his room, and he made himself laugh, you know. When Pink Panther movies come on TV, my wife laughs and laughs, and I have yet to make it through one without going to sleep. I have yet to laugh once in a Pink Panther movie. People vary. I guess, though, if I was dying, I could crank it up. Well, this guy said he just laughed and laughed. Day after day, he laughed and laughed and laughed. And sure enough, his disease went away. And it was one of these killer-type diseases. You, you're nodding. You remember who that was? That's who it was. And what was he dying of? Cancer. And it went away. See? Duh. You don't explain that in terms of naturopathic medicine or germ theory. Nor do you explain faith healing. And faith healing, whether it's merely psychological or whether it also has to do with the work of God, doesn't square with these modern atomistic theories which say the way your body functions is caused by what happens to itty-bitty things in your system. Now, it's not just in medicine. It's also in biology. How, does, uh, how do we get the things that we have? Well, where do you come from? How come you have blue eyes? How come you have brown hair? If you do, if you have brown eyes, how come your eyes aren't blue? It's because of genes. And what are genes? Genes are itty-bitty, teeny-weeny things on itty-bitty, teeny-weeny things called chromosomes, see? And that's what determines all the things that are, there are about you. Now, frankly, the, ge the genetic theory by itself doesn't work very well because uh, it, it really can't explain how uh, you've got cells in your body, all of which have the same genes, but these cells do different things. Uh, you've got the, 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 the cells that are in your hand have the same genes and chromosomes as the cells that are in your ear. But for some reason, you've got a hand and an ear. You don't just have one solid mass, which is all the same thing. And there are a lot of other problems that genetic theory doesn't explain. Certainly, genes are there. I mean, I have blue eyes and you have brown, and, and the genetic theory can explain that. However, Throughout the history of modern biology, there have been those who have said it doesn't work by itself. We need to add something to it, some type of non-unnoticed uh, cause which works with the system as a whole, which is not atomistic at all, but holistic, and which determines the way these itty-bitty particles work in order to produce a whole thing, see, and has a lot of difference. Now, the most recent and the most cogently argued of these theories is Rupert Sheldrake's A New Science of Life, The Hypothesis of Formative Causation. And rather than discuss this at length, I'd like to just read to you from the book jacket what they say about it. And this is simply to illustrate that the modern worldview is pervasively atomistic. Causes, the cause of things is itty-bitty, teeny-weeny things, and not overall things, big things, holistic things. The book jacket, in an obvious attempt to play to the gallery and sell this book, says... In June of 1981, the publication of this book in England set the fires of controversy raging. Nature magazine, one of Britain's leading scientific magazines, called it the best candidate for burning there has been for many years. While the equally distinguished periodical New Scientist stated, it is quite clear that one is dealing here with an important scientific inquiry into the nature of biological and physical reality. In A New Science of Life, the name of the book, Dr. Sheldrake looks at two major unsolved problems. What is the nature of life? 
How are the shapes and instincts of living organisms determined? By shape, he means this, the shape. The fact that I'm not a blob of identical cells, all of which have the same genes. His answer is the hypothesis of formative causation, which proposes that the form, development, and behavior of living organisms are shaped and maintained by specific fields as yet unrecognized by any science. These fields, labeled morphogenetic fields, are molded by the form and behavior of past organisms of the same species through direct connections across both space and time. He calls the process morphic resonance. In effect, Dr. Sheldrake's hypothesis of formative causation enables the regularities of nature to be seen more like habits than as reflections of timeless laws. If you remember what I said about miracle and providence, you should resonate to that last statement. Now, what is he saying? Well, let's take an analogy, this analogy he uses. You have a bar of iron, and that bar of iron by itself is not magnetized. But there is such a thing as a magnetic field, and you can put the magnetic field on the iron, and then it's magnetized. But the magnetic field is not directly a property of iron in itself. It's something that joins to the iron. A magnetic field uh, is a field and not necessarily something given off by particles. Now, he's saying that living beings have the same kind of thing. And he's saying that uh, uh, environment causes changes in living creatures. This hypothesis, the jacket goes on to say, and the book maintains, is entirely testable. For example, Dr. Sheldrake claims that animals tune into the experience of their predecessors. In one actual experiment, several rats were taught a new pattern of behavior, and subsequent rats in other places of the world have a tendency to learn the same task more easily. Okay, now this goes on and on and on and on. Now, it's a very helpful point of view. Let's say that uh, we had a worldwide flood, and the entire earth was changed. Now, the animals go out into these new environments, and the environment interacts with their morphogenetic field, and that interacts with the little atomic particles inside of them, and they go through rapid changes. Explains a lot. Explains how you could have uh, rapid, to some extent, rapid evolution or physical change even within a 6,000-year history of the Earth without going to a modern theory of evolution and without going into some type of idea that man evolved from monkeys or anything, but you can have changes. You can have changes in the human species that happen very rapidly because of environmental influences. Some people go live in Africa and their skin turns black. Now, environmental impact is what's causing that in the early days when the morphogenetic field is not yet stabilized. Now that it's stabilized, for whites and blacks, the changes aren't as great. Now, this is the kind of thing Sheldrake is saying. He's not necessarily right or wrong. It's just to point out that there is an alternative view to the modern atomistic worldview, which is the establishment view. And people who write books like this are generally regarded as weirdos. Okay? And they get drummed out of the profession real fast. Okay, let's take another example. Uh, physical causation. You know what causes electricity, don't you? It's electromagnetic particles, little itty-bitty, teeny-weeny things called atoms and electrons, protons and neutrons, positrons and quarks. These things are what cause electromagnetic functions, such as electricity. 
And how about gravity? Maybe you thought that gravity is a field that pushes things down to the earth or pulls them down. But no, gravity is caused by gravitrons, which are little itty-bitty, teeny-meeny particles and cause gravity. Now, nobody's ever seen a graviton, but modern science says particles are what causes things, and so gravity must be caused by gravitrons. Now, uh, that's not necessarily the only way to look at things. You can take a leaf off of a tree and cut it in half. And you can put the leaf down on a photographic plate and photograph it a certain way, and you know what you get? You get a picture of the whole leaf as it was before you cut it in half because there's a field around the leaf which tends to stay there. This is called Kirlian photography. It's not something that's magic because it happens every time it's done. Now, this is not something that we should be surprised at. Uh, if God clothes himself in a glory cloud, if we think that Adam and Eve were probably clothed in light in the beginning, uh, it's not necessarily the case. We should be surprised that there are fields or auras or shapes around things that modern science doesn't deal with. But modern science doesn't even look for these types of things because it has an atomistic predisposition. Uh, so we can say that as Christians we want to balance this atomistic view by at least taking seriously, we don't know, I'm not saying that one thing is true or another, but taking seriously the argument that things tend to retain whole forms and that there is more to physical causation than merely teeny-weeny atoms acting on each other. See, that's all. How about the interpretation of Scripture? Well, you think that this doesn't apply to the interpretation of Scripture? Sure does. You go to seminary nowadays, and they tell you how to produce a sermon. And how do you do it? Well, you take a text of Scripture, and you make a list of all the individual words. And then you do a word study on each word. And you know what? You study the individual particles that the word is made out of, and then the individual words, and you get truth out of the investigation of individual teeny-weeny bits of meaning that are in the sentence. Generally, what you're not taught to do is read for what the passage itself says as a whole, which you can pretty much get from English without going back to the Hebrew and Greek. You know, it's not that hard to read the Bible. I mean, you read it, and it makes a certain amount of sense. Some passages are harder than others. Merely breaking things down into itty-bitty words doesn't get you all that much farther, but boy, I tell you, when you go to seminary, that's what you need to get. Head of one theological seminary said, if my house burned down, the one thing I would run in to get would be my set of Kittle's word studies on the New Testament. That's the big liberal set that analyzes every word. Now, the problem with Kittle is that Kittle is so naive that he doesn't understand the difference between words and concepts. Words are one thing, meanings are another. Theological meanings. Now, there's a lot that you can get from Kittle, and so for those of you that are theologians, I'm not saying burn your Kittle. But I'm going to read to you from a little essay that Kittle has in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament and show you how modern man, even as he, as he does Bible interpretation, tends to take the particles and think all the information is contained in the particles instead of in the overall meaning of what a whole sentence says. And meaning comes from sentences, uh, mostly, not from individual teeny-weeny bits. Now, this is on the word akalutheo, and the word akalutheo means to follow. It means follow. And that's what it means. It's used in various contexts. But what it means is follow. But Kittle says, and this is Kittle himself, because it signifies following the Messiah, this discipleship is essentially a religious gift. Akalutheo means participation in the salvation offered in Jesus. No, akalutheo means to follow. 
Akalutheo doesn't mean participation in the salvation offered in Jesus. The Bible may teach some concept like that. Obviously it does. But this word here doesn't mean that. The word means follow. Translate that into English. To follow means participation in the salvation offered in Jesus. Is that true? No, to follow means to come after somebody. That's all. Words are simple. In Luke 9, 61 following, only he who euthetos, well, it goes on. Uh, this is a little bit uh, in-depth. That's the problem with using it in a class like this. Um, the New Testament simply has the active term because what it is seeking to express is an action and not a concept. Well, that's a problem because he's discussing a concept of discipleship here, but he's trying to pour it through a word which simply means follow. On this basis, it is no accident that the word akaluthane is used only in the Gospels. That's not true. And that there is agreement as to its use in all four Gospels and that they restrict the relationship signified by it to the historical Jesus. That's not true either. Akaluthao is used simply to mean follow in places in the New Testament. Now, I hope I, I may have lost you there, but the bottom line of that is here is a big, heavy-duty piece of German scholarship which makes the obvious mistake of confusing a theological concept with the meaning of a word. The word follow means follow. The general concept of following Christ and being his disciple is great. We're all for that. But you don't get that by looking at the word akaluthane. You get that by reading a sentence which Jesus says, follow me. Jesus said, follow me. Now that teaches us to follow Christ and teaches us discipleship. But the word follow all by itself doesn't teach us that. The word follow means follow. That's all it means. That's why procedurally an endeavor like this is, is highly illustrative of the modern mindset. Instead of uh, writing a long book which would be called Theological Concepts in the New Testament as they relate to words, this is a dictionary where they take a word and they try to pour all kinds of meaning through the word that's not there. Words just mean what they mean. Now, that's an illustration of the modern worldview, and this is what fundamentalists do, it's what Calvinists do, it's what dispensationalists do, and it's what liberals do. They all do it. You pick up almost any modern theological book, and the first thing they do is they try to define terms. Well, that's not necessarily a bad procedure, but when they use a procedure like this, and they all do, you are confusing words and concepts, and they're two different things. And we can oppose this to simply looking at what the passage teaches. Jesus said, follow me. That's clear. That means follow me, discipleship. The passage teaches that. The individual words don't teach that. The word Jesus doesn't mean discipleship. The word says doesn't mean discipleship. The word follow doesn't mean discipleship. And the word me doesn't mean discipleship. But Jesus says, follow me, means discipleship. See? I hope you see the difference. It's the larger body of material which gives you the basic meanings not individual atomistic words. How about preaching? We talked about word studies and the way we're taught to do it in seminary. How about preaching? How do modern preachers preach? My first point this week is such and such. You either have one big point or three alliterating points. But you're communicating points of information to people. I don't know what people are supposed to do with these points. Now, I've never met anybody who could remember all the points that they have ever been taught in sermons. In fact, you know, when I go, we don't have this here, thank goodness, but when I go and hear some sermon and I hear three points, I don't go out of the church and remember what the points were. Now, apparently people used to believe they had to do that and they would memorize the points as the pastor gave them out. I remember one three-point sermon. It was on Isaiah 6. It said the points were, Woe is me, for I am unclean. 
for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The first point was woe. The second point was, lo, this has touched your lips. The second point was, lo. The third point was, go, tell my people. Woe, lo, and go. I remembered those three points, folks, but normally I don't remember points. How about preaching, uh, I, I'm assuming you're familiar with Isaiah 6. I'm singing it in here, so. How about long-term preaching? Long-term reconstruction of viewpoints and actions is a goal of preaching. We come in and we expound the scripture, and the goal is not for you to take away three memorized points or five points or one point, but the goal is over a period of time to change the whole way we look at things and the way we act, you see. And that involves just pushing it out and encouraging people to do what's right. Much more long-term approach to preaching, but in seminary, boy, they want you to get those points down. As if people are going to remember these points. Well, they don't. That's bad communication to start with, but it's it squares very nicely with the modern atomistic worldview. How about our doctrine of the sacraments? If you read up in systematic theology, you'll find that the big discussion is what are the sacraments composed of? What are their parts? What are they made up of? If we break them down into their constituent parts, what are they made up of? Are they transubstantiated, consubstantiated, real presence joined to the elements, real presence not joined to the elements, mere memorials, if we take this bread and cut it open, what do we see inside of it? Jesus' body or what? It's the individual component parts that are concerned with. The Bible's not really concerned with that. The Bible's more concerned with what the sacraments do. But atomism isn't really concerned with what things do. It's more concerned with what they're made out of. Again, part and parcel of the modern worldview to take one and kind of ignore the other. Symbolism. And we'll just take this as a final example. When people interpret the Bible... And they look at the symbols of the Bible. How do they tend to do it? Well, they look at them as codes. This is a code for that. And so I saw the Euphrates River part and a vast swarm of armadillos march through. Okay, what does that mean? Well, the Euphrates River actually is a symbol for the Jordan River. But God decided to fool us and not call it the Jordan River, but call it the Euphrates River. And the armadillos are the Babylonians. Okay? Now, see, that's a code approach. This is that, this is that, this is that, and this is that. Now, the Bible doesn't use a code approach. That's not what symbolism is for in the Bible, because God doesn't need to. If that's all God wanted to say, he would have said the Jordan River parts and the Babylonians come through. He's perfectly capable of saying that. Symbols in the Bible are used because they present more than one thing at a time, and they point to a whole worldview. In other words, you take the entire symbolic package, and you get something which speaks more than merely to individual items of information. As we go through the book of Revelation on Wednesday night, I'm sure that will come up over and over again. Symbolism in the Bible is not a code where this is that and this is that, but it's an entire worldview, which is a, a way of looking at the world which gives us certain insights into what's going on. Now, the bottom line all, on all this is that in any Enoch culture, including our own, an Enoch culture will tend to take the the vast diversity that God has made in the world and reduce it all the way down just to one viewpoint. They're not able to live with the fact that there are many different things in the world, many different kinds of causality. They want to reduce it all down to only one kind of causality. They don't like the idea that from one perspective you can see things atomistically, from another perspective you can see things in terms of fields, from another perspective you can see things in terms of waves, and these are the three basic parts three basic uh, ways to look at the world. Modern physics has had to go into that, but the rest of society as a whole tends still to ignore it. 
denying multiple causation. The reason is that when you want to play God, you've got to master all the details. And you can't master the details when it's, you've got one set of details over here and then a completely different way of looking at it over here which sheds more light. The pagan always tends to reduce things down and make them simple where he thinks he can master the world. The modern atomistic worldview has led to all kinds of benefits to us technologically and in other ways. It's led to all kinds of great word studies, and they're quite valuable if you use the proper way, not the way that Kittle uses them, but used properly. Uh, not all of Kittle is as bad as the one I was just reading. Uh, the modern atomistic worldview has collected all kinds of junk that we can use. After all, the Bible says the pagans store up a whole bunch of junk, and then God kills them, and we get the junk, see? And we use it right. So we can be thankful for the modern establishment view and all the things that it's brought about, but it tends to ignore everything that doesn't fit. Because if you want to play God, you've got to have one way of looking at things and push it all the way through. That's one of the reasons why the city of Enoch uh, doesn't endure. Because it never has the whole picture. And that's one of the things we need to remember in looking at it. That there's a whole lot more to the world than modern establishment viewpoints allow. Now, perhaps in the future we'll come back and look at a little bit more of this. But I don't like to get into a whole lot of philosophy and stuff in these classes. I don't think that it's really necessary or helpful. I think that if we can remember that our, we're healthy not only according to what germs we're exposed to, but also according to how positive our mental attitude is and how disciplined our community life is, that's, that's enough. And uh, we don't want to fall into modern establishment or fringe ways of thinking exclusively. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.